From the videos you've watched on the Japanese-American experience, Auschwitz and the Bataan Death March, you've seen some of the way wars causes people to treat others. Your textbook has provided you with a good general background of the various theaters and broad progress of the war. I want to take a few minutes and try and help you see the war from a more personal perspective. I'm going to take the next 20 or 30 minutes and tell you about two men's experience in the Depression and World War II. These men are not famous, just two ordinary men. But as I talk, I want you to note the broader historical events or historical developments you've read about and studied from the videos that the people I talk about were involved in, as well as from your readings of the textbook and uh, last week's work also. As you do so, this lecture will provide you with somewhat of a review of the periods we've studied up to this point. Arthur was born August 15, 1909 in Schenectady, New York. He was the fourth of seven children, the oldest of whom lived only a few days. His parents were both Polish immigrants from the same town, although they did not meet until they arrived in the United States. In fact, Arthur's mother never learned to speak English. Three of her daughters lived with her throughout her life after her husband's death and took care of issues outside the home for her. Sometime between Arthur's 6th and 12th birthday, the family moved to Cleveland, Ohio, where his father, a cabinet maker, worked on some of the early electric plants in northern Ohio. After graduating from high school, Arthur attended Case Western Reserve for a year, then moved to Ohio State University, where he graduated with a bachelor's in landscape architecture. A few years later, he earned a certificate in civil engineering. Incidentally, there were no student loans or grants available during the Depression, so Arthur worked his way through school, waiting at tables at various Greek fraternities' homes where students with wealthier parents lived. Between the late 1920s and early 1940s, all of his siblings graduated from college with professional degrees of one sort or another. His first job out of college was developing a recreation plan for the area along the southern border of Ohio, where it ran adjacent to the Ohio River. About 1938, his older brother, an engineer, who was working in the small town of Los Alamos, New Mexico, wrote Arthur and told him about the opportunities available in the West for employment through public work fair agencies like the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Works Progress Administration. He also told him about the beauty of the country with the hills, pinyon pines, and other interesting, to a landscape architect, plants. The letter caught Arthur's attention, and after a year with the state of Ohio, he traveled to Santa Fe by bus, then by stagecoach south to a small community on the Rio Grande called Hot Springs. The town later changed its name to Truth or Consequences, after a television show popular in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Hot Springs was near Elephant Butte Lake, a lake created in 1916 as a flood control project to reduce flooding along the Texas-New Mexico border. Arthur had been hired by the Civilian Conservation Corps to design a recreation area near the south end of the lake. The last time I was there, some 30 years ago, the footings for the housing constructed in the area was still available. In fact, some of them were used to frame picnic tables and the restaurant he designed was still in use as a snack bar. Most history books don't talk about the actual bureaucratic tools Roosevelt used to run the New Deal programs. For ones like the WPA and the CCCs, he signed up the workers as essentially military reservists. Although I do not believe it was intentional, 
when he began to see the inevitability of war, he was able to create what we call 90-day wonders by simply activating the reserve detachments that were working in the area. Since Arthur was working in southern New Mexico, he was part of a detachment that became the 200th Coast Artillery. This regiment consisted of three brigades, an administration unit, and two functioning units trained and equipped to operate anti-aircraft batteries. Because of his age and education, Arthur was assigned to the Headquarters Brigade. Because the regiment was originally a unit of the New Mexico National Guard, officers were not appointed, as in the regular army, but elected by members of each unit. These officers in turn appointed ranking enlisted personnel. As a draftee, Arthur was unknown to those in his unit and so was passed over for an officer's role. Instead, he was assigned the rank of Master Sergeant. Arthur's detachment was inducted and completed boot camp outside of El Paso, Texas at Fort Bliss, which is where they completed their training in anti-aircraft defense and other phases of military training. However, Arthur was unhappy. Under federal rules, at age 31, he was well above 26, the maximum age allowed for draftees. When he pointed this out at his induction, he was told to continue with boot camp until the snafu was worked out. While at Fort Bliss, Arthur had little interest in accompanying most of the battalion on leave as they visited the bars, dance clubs, and brothels that gave Juarez, Mexico, its reputation as a wild town. He tended to stay on base or visit a nearby movie theater, museum, or play in El Paso. Occasionally, one of the lieutenants in his regiment, George Brown, invited he and a few others to his parents' home for some family games and Sunday dinner. Brown's family home was just a couple of blocks south of base. Brown was the second of oldest seven children. Before enlisting, he was an electrician with the El Paso Electric Company. In fact, some of you may know about the tradition of lighting this huge star on the southern end of Mount Franklin each Christmas in El Paso. Brown helped build the original star in the 1930s. Arthur later recalled that these visits and home-cooked meals were the highlight of his life at Fort Bliss. Arthur shipped out with his unit on August 7, 1941. Once they arrived in Manila and got settled into their billets, the Army finally addressed the problem of Arthur's age. On Thanksgiving Day 1941, his commanding officer called him in and informed him that the United States Army had determined that he was, in fact, too old for the Army, and that he was scheduled to ship out back to the States on Christmas Day. Ten days later, on December 7, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. The next day, elements of the 16th and 48th Divisions of the Japanese 14th Army invaded Luzon Island in the Philippines. Arthur was in the Army for the duration of the war. Although well-trained for the war, but without the proper equipment to defend themselves from a ground attack, the U.S. forces held out for four months, from the first attack on December 8, 1941, until the American and Filipino forces surrendered on April 9, 1942. The 105-day battle was the longest resistance to the Japanese Imperial Army in the early stages of World War II. The delay forced the Japanese to divert forces originally targeted to invade Borneo and Java, slowing the invasion of both of those islands as well as New Guinea and the Solomons. Most importantly, the delay bought the Allied forces time to establish a base of operations in Australia, a key to maintaining the ability to wage war in the Pacific Theater. By the time they surrendered, the troops were living on breadfruit, a common diet among Filipinos but sorely lacking in vitamins and minerals needed to maintain fighting strength for those of European descent. 
After 105 days, the American troops were not only starving and ill with malnutrition, they were also out of bullets. When the Bataan Peninsula fell, the prisoners were marched some 65 miles to the nearest railhead at San Fernando. During the five-day march, the POWs were given no food or water. Keep in mind, this is the tropics, where humidity is even worse than here in the southern United States. Those who attempted to stop at a water fountain or a culvert were tortured and killed. Those who attempted to feed the POWs were likewise bayoneted. But the arrival at the railhead in San Fernando provided no relief. Arthur recalled, and I quote, There was one faucet and a long line of guys trying to get water. There were no latrines. Flies were everywhere. Most of the men were sick, a lot with dysentery, and had no control, end quote. Sergeant Winston Shalito of Carlsbad, New Mexico, was one of about 375 that were trucked to Camp O'Donnell. He recalled, and again I quote, They marched them through the gate and kept them in formation, and some died standing there before they even broke formation, end quote. At Camp O'Donnell, the Japanese had a strict no-work, no-eat policy. The rations consisted of about a cup of rice per day. Arthur once recalled that they would build a fire in the middle of the compound and place a trash can lid upside down on the coals, then sweep crickets from throughout the camp onto the trash can lid. When they hit the lid, the bugs would instantly fry, and the POWs picked them up with their fingers and ate them. That was their protein. On one occasion, he was working in the fields, and the POWs who grew their own food, and he smarted off to one of the guards. The guard responded by grabbing a hoe and hitting Arthur over the head with it. He sported a scar across the top of his head for life, one that became more and more obvious as he lost his hair. Arthur, like most of the POWs, did not spend the entire war in the Philippines. Starting in the fall of 1942, the Japanese began shipping POWs to various stations throughout Asia, where they were assigned to work in various war-related industries. The first of these left Manila on November 7, 1942. Designed to hold about 350 people, about 1,100 POWs were forced into the ship's hold. 700 in the rear, sitting on top of the coal used to power the ship, and the other 400 set in the forward hold on top of a pile of horse manure. Recognizing that the American military was unlikely to fire on ships that held their own military personnel, the Japanese often placed the POWs on military troop ships. Also, in violation of accepted rules of treatment of POWs, they often failed to inform others which ships held POWs and which did not, thus discouraging the enemy from attacking any troop ship. Arthur boarded the Haromaru on October 1, 1944. The ship was also known as the Benjumaru, or in English, the toilet ship. The ship was part of a convoy of 18 ships that was attacked twice by American Navy vessels. In fact, the Harumaro was one of only four ships in the convoy that survived the journey. Aboard ship, the men were fed by lowering buckets of a thin soup down through the deck hatch. Each man got about three tablespoons of soup each day. The buckets, once emptied, became latrine buckets. When they were full of excrement, they were pulled up to be dumped into the ocean but often they would get caught on the beams near the top of the hold and would spill out onto the men standing below, giving rise to the POW's name, the toilet ship. Arthur's friend, George Brown, shipped out a couple of months before Arthur on the Shinyomaru on September 7, 1944. Outside of the entrance of Manila Harbor lurked the U.S. submarine Paddle. 
unaware that American POWs were aboard, the paddle fired four torpedoes into the five-ship convoy. Two of them hit the Shinyumaru. As the ship began to fill with water, it began to list to one side. Although the POWs were locked in the hold, some managed to get a hatch open and climb out. When they arrived on deck, the Japanese began to shoot the POWs, forcing them to jump overboard. Instead of engaging in rescue operations, soldiers on the adjacent ship began to machine gun the men who had jumped overboard. Defying the machine guns, Brown was last seen pushing some flotsam to one of the wounded POWs. He was not among the 80 or so POWs who made it to shore and were rescued by Filipino insurgents and hidden from the Japanese. For his actions that day, George Brown was awarded the Bronze Star. Brown's death heavily affected his family. His father, a U.S. Marshal and Corbin interpreter, was not permitted to work trials of those with Japanese ancestry. The story of his ability to eventually forgive those involved in George's death is inspiring to all who are familiar with it, but we don't have time to go into that right now. Arthur learned the war was over when he woke up one morning and there were no guards around the camp. Thinking it was a trick, the POWs remained in camp for a couple of days until an American plane dropped several 50-gallon steel drums outside of the camp fences. When they hit the ground, the drums burst open, spreading C-rations and K-rations all over the ground. The sight of the food was simply too attractive to ignore, and the prisoners broke through the gate and headed for the food. In a testament to the human ability to endure, Arthur, who is about six foot tall, just about two inches taller than I am, but had a larger bone structure, weighed about 75 pounds when he was finally liberated. His experience was common among Allied POWs in the Pacific Theater. At the end of the war, the Army's policy was to discharge troops at the same camp in which they were inducted. So instead of going home to Cleveland, Arthur was sent back to El Paso. Also, sending him home in the condition he was in when he rescued would have shocked the American people especially his parents, so he was not allowed to discharge until he had been fattened up a bit. His assignment at Fort Bliss was to eat. Well, you can only do that so much. Then you have to rest and let it digest before you can eat again. During one between meals walk around the base, Arthur stumbled upon a private throwing single-shot guns into a bonfire. When he asked what he was doing, the soldier explained that he was burning the rifle butts off guns so they could be melted down. The guns were old World War I vintage Springfield rifles that were obsolete. Arthur, thinking of the great hunting land in New Mexico, asked if he could have one, to which the soldier replied something like, knock yourself out. Arthur used that gun as a deer rifle for many years, eventually giving it to his longtime hunting and camping buddy. My older brother cherishes it and I think still hunts with it today. Bored to death, almost, at Fort Bliss, Arthur eventually recalled the fun times he had at the Brown home nearby, and one weekend he decided to stop by and see if they had moved. So he walked down the street and around the corner, climbed the few stairs from the street to the front porch, and knocked on the screen door. A voice came from inside saying, come on in. And when he opened the door, he saw one of George's younger sisters, one who had been away in Arizona attending secretarial school, when he was in boot camp laying on the couch in the living room. And that is how my parents met. Now, while telling my family history is fun for me, my father's World War II experience involves several different elements of American and world history from the first half of the 20th century. Thinking back on the lecture, 
What are some historical events that caught your attention during the lecture?